0: Good morning Providence. It's good to see you all this morning. Glad you're here. My name is Daniel Savage, one of your pastors here and it's a joy to be in the Word together this morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and we're continuing a series Uh, Good King, Bad King, The King, where we're looking at these kings of the Old Testament and thinking together about how both good, bad, and ugly, they're pointing us to a better king. Last week, we were um, talking about Saul, and we looked at um, his reign and rule, and he was uh, by every measure uh, not a good king. He was afraid of the people. He feared man more than he feared God. He compromised. And, and as his life progresses, what you see in Saul is he, he moves farther and farther away from God. And distances himself more and more from him. And this morning we're talking about David. Which in many ways is, is the opposite of Saul. He is moving toward God. Even in the midst of his failure. He was a good king and a humble king king what we're going to look at this morning we're going to look at a humble king named David and we're going to think together about how this humble king pointed us towards a better king that was to come so let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to read 1st Samuel chapter 16 Heavenly Father we come to you now and ask
1: for your help God that you would speak through your word you have promised to use it You've told us that it's sharper than a
0: two-edged sword, that it separates to the point of separating bone and marrow, that it cuts right to who we are. God, I pray that you would use it in our hearts this morning. Shape us and help us to look more like our King, Jesus. God, reveal him to us and help us to see him. And as he is lifted high, I
1: pray that he would draw us to himself. God, do that now through my weakness in my inability to explain this word, God, would you move in power? We pray these things in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. First Samuel chapter 16, this is what it says in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and went to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse are your are all your sons here? And he said there remains yet the youngest but behold he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ready And had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from the day from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And the chapter begins with Samuel grieving over Saul. If you remember from last week, Saul has been rejected by this point as king because he compromised and he disobeyed God. He feared the people instead of fearing God. And so Samuel is grieving. He's grieving for Saul. He's grieving for himself, but grieving most of all for the people of God who now have a king that Samuel knows has been rejected by God. And so he's wondering who is going to lead? What is going to happen now? if you're taking notes, the first point to write down this morning is God provides a king for his people. God provides a king for his people right there in verse one. We're not even out of the first verse yet. When the Lord says, fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. That's an interesting phrase that he uses there that God says, I have provided for myself a king. Among his sons. That phrase could be the theme of this whole chapter. The word uh, provided there that he uses when he says, The Lord has provided a king. uh, That word is used over and over throughout the chapter. And it means that God is working, God is moving to provide. He's been on the move, he saw the need for a king, and he's been working to provide what his people needed. He saw David out in the fields keeping the sheep, and he's been working in David's heart to prepare him to be the king that was needed at that time. And so the Lord provides a king. He rejects Saul and will eventually remove him and provide a better king in David. But that, that raises the question, why would God intervene in this way? If you remember from two weeks ago when Brian was talking about this decision that the people had made to move away from the leadership that God had provided and move towards a king, God had warned them that a king was not going to be a good thing for them. And so what we see in Saul in many ways is exactly what God had warned them about. So why does he give them a better king when Saul was the king that they deserved? Well, first, God is merciful. He is gracious to his people. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a good father that sees our needs and provides what is needed. The second God has bigger plans in mind. God's plan is not simply to make his people comfortable. He's not just providing a king, but he's executing a larger plan of redemption. that will involve a promise a future king, and a future kingdom. Ultimately, God is not just providing a king for his people, but he's providing a king that will have a line of descendants that will produce the king. If we think about all this and what it means for us that, that God would display his character in this way, it should bring us great comfort. We see that God knows what we need before we know we need it. And he's moving to provide. He's working to provide what is needed in ways that we can understand, and we can rest in that truth this morning. In your life, the same is true. God knows what you need before you need it. Jesus says in Matthew that the Father knows what you need before you ask it. He's working to provide what is needed in ways that you can understand and in a way that we can rest and trust in him. If you think about it from David's perspective, David was out in these fields, living in obscurity, fulfilling his duty to the family and probably wondering what is going to become of my life. Where do I go from here? There wasn't like a management training program in the fields of Bethlehem. He didn't like see a path before him. He's wondering what is God going to do with my life He had no idea that God was preparing him for something else. If you feel stuck in life and wondering what direction you should go, remember that God has not forgotten you. He sees you. He has plans and purposes for your life. He's prepared good works in advance that he wants you to do. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, seek his direction. Wait with patience for his timing. He's working in ways that you cannot see. The second thing to notice in God's provision of a new king is the kind of king that he provides. If you're taking notes, that's the second point. God provides a king with a humble heart. God provides a king with a humble heart. God sends Samuel to the small town of Bethlehem. And it was such an obscure place so far off anyone's radar that when Samuel arrives there, the elders of the town come out trembling and asking, are you coming in peace? Because as, as Samuel, the prophet of God, approaches their small town, their only thought is, he must be coming to deliver bad news. Why else would he come here? And so they ask, "Are you coming in peace?" And he says, "Yes, in peace." And Samuel gets to Bethlehem, begins to look at Jesse's sons. He spots the oldest. And he thinks Eliab is certainly God's choice. He's taller than the rest. He's the oldest, but God says he is not. The one this is eerily similar to the description of Saul. If you remember, Saul is described as head and shoulders above everyone else. The people of God looked at Saul and thought, look how tall he is. He must be a great king. Samuel is making the same mistake here. He sees the oldest and the tallest, and he says, surely that is God's man. It has hit me more than once in the last couple of weeks reading these stories that. Tall people just don't get the respect that they used to. This is where God's lesson begins. God is going to teach Samuel and he's going to teach us that he looks at people differently than we do. In verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord is going to make his choice based on what only he can see, which is the heart of David. He chooses David based on his heart. Well, what kind of heart did David have? He has a humble heart. He's a heart that fears the Lord more than he fears man. He was a man after God's own heart. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 13, you can learn about his heart. As you read some of the Psalms that he wrote, he, he loved the Lord. He enjoyed the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. So Samuel goes through all the brothers and the Lord rejects each one. And you see his confusion when he's, he's, he's come here because the Lord told him, one of Jesse's sons is my anointed. And now Jesse has passed seven sons before him. There's no one else in the room. And, and
1: Samuel asked, are, are there any more? And Jesse answers, just the youngest. who's out keeping the sheep.
0: So the Lord sends Samuel to an obscure place to find the youngest son out in the fields, keeping the sheep. This is who the Lord has seen and chosen for himself to be the ruler of his people. He goes to a town that no one would have considered. He selects the youngest son whose own father didn't consider a possibility, and he brings him from the pasture and anoints him the next king of Israel.
1: David, by every measurement, is an unlikely hero. But The Bible is filled with
0: unlikely heroes. And the story of the Bible culminates in the most unlikely hero of all. That when God chooses David, he's simply pointing us to another shepherd who would come from the obscure town of Bethlehem. He's pointing to another king that no one would have selected. In fact, this is what Isaiah the prophet says about Jesus. Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we
1: esteemed
0: him not. Just like David, Jesus was a king that no one would have chosen, but he was the king that was needed. We should rejoice this morning that God knows what we need better than we do. This truth struck me with even more force this morning. As I was driving here this morning, I was thinking actually about that passage that uh, Matthew Tyler read during the worship in revelation chapter five, he's he's painting this scene of, of the the throne room of God. And John is getting to look in and he's writing down what he's seeing. And there's God, the father sitting in his throne and he has this scroll in his hand. And like, Matthew Tyler read an angel cries out who's worthy to to open this scroll and read it. And it describes this dilemma that they look all over heaven and earth and no one is found who is worthy to unlock the scroll and to read it. And it says that John begins to weep until one of the elders comes over to him and puts his hand on him and says, weep no more for behold, the lion of Judah is worthy. And this is the, this is the mystery. This is, this is what hit me this morning is that John looks
1: up and he doesn't see a lion. He says he saw a lamb that looked as though it had been slain. The king that no one would have chosen. The one who was despised and rejected. He is the only one who's worthy.
0: He took the lowest place and he's been now exalted to the highest place. We didn't need a king that was head and shoulders above us. We needed a king that would humble himself and take on the form of a man. We needed a king that would take our punishment upon himself. We needed a king that would stoop down and wash his disciples feet.
1: We needed a king that was filled with compassion who would offer us forgiveness. We needed a king that could heal our deepest wounds and overcome our greatest enemies. We needed a good shepherd from the forgotten town of Bethlehem. We needed a savior. Why do we need this humble king who
0: would be a savior? Because God is not like man. We we learn in this story that he judges not by what is on the outside, but by what is on the inside. In other words, we may be able to fool the other people in this room, but we can't fool God. God sees our hearts. And this is is an alarming truth. Hebrews chapter four, verse 13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees our hearts. And one day he says, we will give an account for all that he sees there. He sees all the guilt the darkness, the
1: evil thoughts, the twisted motivations. He sees it all. This is why we need a savior. This is
0: why we need a king with a humble heart who would come to save us. We need a king who can defeat our greatest enemies. We need a king who can bring us safety and peace. Safety and peace is exactly what David brought the people of Israel He brought victory over their enemies and peace. The last point, if you're taking notes this morning, is that God provides a king who brings peace. God provides a king who brings peace. Turn over in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Very next book, turn over there. It's one of the most important passages about David and maybe one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. David, by this point, has been established as king. He's, he's defeated his enemies. His throne is secure, and he's sitting with the prophet Nathan. He's looking at all that God has done, and he, he realizes that God's, um, the Ark of the Covenant now still rests in a tent. And David's sitting in his palace, in his kingdom, and he says, I want to build the Lord a house. I want to build him a great house temple and Nathan says, go and do what's in your heart. But the Lord gives Nathan a vision where he says, no, you cannot build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse eight, it says, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, this says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord used David and his leadership to bring about victory over the enemies of Israel. Starting with Goliath and continuing from one foreign enemy after another, David defeated the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Syrians, and others. God was with David. He cut off all of his enemies before him. The Lord brought about peace for his people through David's reign and rule, and he gave Israel rest from all their enemies. But he also gave the people a promise through the reign of David. If you look down a few more verses, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This promise that's made to David is known as the Davidic covenant. Is a promise made to David is shaped the way that the people of God thought about the coming Messiah, the the savior that was supposed to come, the promised one in Genesis three, when men, when man fell into sin, God promised a savior. He promised that a savior would come to crush the head of the serpent. And as Brian mentioned two weeks ago, when he started this series, the question that should be burning in our minds as we read the Old Testament after God makes this promise is when is he coming? Where is this one who's going to crush the head of the serpent? When is he going to arrive? And as you read through these stories, each new leader, each new prophet, priest, and now king that emerges, we should be asking, is this the one? Is this the one that God has provided? Is he the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent? We find out here in this promise that God makes to David, that this Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. This is why the Messiah is referred to as the son of David in the New Testament. As you read the gospels, you see people referring to Jesus over and over again as son of David. And what they're doing when they do that is calling him the Messiah. They're saying, this is it. This is the son of David. This is the one we've been waiting for. The one we've been expecting. He's in the line of David. He is the savior. The one who's come. The Messiah or the son of David will be like David in many ways. Just like David, the son of David brings victory over our enemies. But he doesn't bring victory over foreign nations. He, He brings victory over the enemies of sin and death. And just like David, the son of David brings peace through these victories. His, his finished work and final victory brings rest from all of our striving and brings us peace with God. This is the peace that we need. One story in particular stands out to me as I think about the ways that people call Jesus son of David in the New Testament. It's a story that has <clears throat> been sort of etched into my heart. In Matthew chapter 20, it's a story about two blind beggars who are on the side of the road. They're they're on the road that comes out of Jericho. And that would have been a, a frequently traveled path. So they've stationed themselves there on the road outside Jericho. So people come and go and they can ask them for money. It says, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, talking about Jesus and his disciples and these great crowds that the New Testament describes. We know from other stories that these are sometimes tens of thousands of people. And so there would have been a regular traffic on this road, but for tens of thousands of people to be coming by would have been different. It would have created a buzz, a noise that would have been unusual. And Even two blind beggars on the side of the road would have realized something different is happening here.
1: They would have begin to ask, who is coming? What what is happening? Verse 30, and behold, there were two blind
0: men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out. Think about these two men. They hear this crowd, this noise that's coming, and they begin to ask, what's happening? And someone tells them Jesus is coming. Jesus has been around long enough at this point that these men know who Jesus is. They know what he's done. They've heard the stories about how he's given sight to the blind and how he's made the lame walk and he's cast out demons and he's done these incredible things. They know he's a miracle worker, that he heals people, that the power of God is with him. And so they cry out. And What do they cry out? Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And what they're saying is, we need your help. We believe in you.
1: We believe you're the one who's come to bring us peace. The crowd rebukes them, telling them to
0: be silent. And so this crowd is coming by and they don't know where Jesus is in the crowd. So I just imagine them screaming this out over and over again. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And it begins to annoy the people in the crowd. and They say, be quiet. But these men do what you and I would do if there was a person passing by who you knew was your only chance at being healed. He says they cried
1: out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then the best part in verse 32, it says, in stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus hears their cries for mercy over
0: the crowd. He hears their confessions of faith. And he says, what would you have me do for you? verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be
1: opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Messiah, promised one, we believe. the same thing is happening here this morning where we sit on the side of a road, helpless
0: and hopeless apart from a Messiah.
1: And he is passing by. Will you cry out to him? Will you cry out to him to find the peace that you need? the
0: forgiveness of your sins and new life in him where you can have fellowship with God forever.
1: If you're not a Christian, the way to have peace with God is to call out in faith to the son of David. To confess your belief. That you believe that he is the one sent from God to live a life that you could never live a sinless life. And to
0: die in your place, the death that you deserve to die. The death of a sinner. He died for you so that you could cry out to him and there could be an exchange. Your sin placed upon him on the cross and his
1: righteousness given to you so that you could have peace with God. If you're a Christian here this morning, we too need to cry out in faith. Our need for Jesus
0: hasn't gone away. We serve a victorious king who has paid the penalty that brings us peace. Yet so many of us live under the burden and weight of sin. During the reign of David, the Israelites didn't pay tribute to anyone. In fact, other nations paid tribute to them. Why? Because they had a victorious, conquering king. In the same way, Christian, you shouldn't be
1: paying tribute to any foreign invader your king has already defeated sin. He reigns in victory. This means at
0: least two things for us this morning, two gospel truths that I want you to remind yourself of each day. First, you should live in peace, knowing that the debt for your sin has been fully paid. If you're carrying around guilt and shame for your sin, take it to the cross. Cry out to the Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And trust that he hears you. Jesus always hears the cry of faith. David himself wrote in Psalm
1: 51, wash me and I will be clean. Do you believe that? If the Lord washes you, you will certainly be clean. Second, you don't have to make room
0: for sin in your life. You are no longer a slave to it. You have died to it. Now you are alive to God. You don't need it. You don't have to give into it. You don't have to believe the lie that it will satisfy you. You have been set free to enjoy God and live for the things that are better. And so live in the freedom that your king has delivered to you. David's life, his reign as king, and even his writings point to a better king that was coming. David was a good king in many ways. He was a man after God's own heart. He was humble, and throughout
1: his life, he maintained a fear of the Lord. But David wasn't perfect. In fact, he was far from perfect. He loved the Lord, but he made devastating mistakes. Just a few chapters
0: after God makes this incredible promise to David about a kingdom that would last forever, David uses his power that God had given him To take advantage of a woman in his kingdom. He betrays one of his own soldiers and eventually has him killed to try to
1: cover up his sin. In the end, David was a sinful man like you and me. He was a good leader, a mighty
0: warrior, a man who loved God. But God's people needed something more than that. We don't need a good king. We need a perfect king. We need a sinless king, one who can stand in our place. We need a king that always lives to make intercession for us. And David wrote about this king that we need. He writes about this coming king. He writes about him in several places. One is Psalm 16, where he writes about a king who will not be abandoned to Hades or death. One whose flesh will not see corruption. The apostle Peter talks about this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 when he says, Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Peter clearly explains that David knew that he was not the king that would save God's people. He prophesied that another king was coming who would be both king and savior, one who would stare death in the face, and death would not be able to hold him. Unlike David, this king would be perfect. He would be killed, but death would not keep him. Then, In Acts chapter 2, as Peter is saying these things and talking about a a Jesus who had been crucified and who had been buried and who had been raised from the dead. It says that the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what should
1: we do? Maybe that's happening to you this morning. Maybe there's something stirring in your heart. Maybe your heart is cut with conviction over your sin.
0: Peter replies to the people and he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them to turn. Turn from false hope. Turn from sin. Turn from your former way of life and turn to Christ.
1: Believe in him, the son of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a king that no one would have chosen. He lived a sinless life. He was despised
0: and rejected. He was crucified, buried, and he rose again on the third day. He died to pay the debt for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And now this throne, his throne, has been established, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father today, and he offers us eternal
1: life. If you're not a Christian, you can put your faith in him today. The Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Cry out to him. Lord, have mercy, son of David. Maybe you are feeling that stirring in your heart this morning.
0: Maybe you have more questions. I want to invite you to come to something called Christianity Explored. It starts on March 6th. If you're new to hearing this story and you have more questions about it and want to know what it means to follow Jesus, I would encourage you to sign up and go. it will be a place where you can study about Jesus. Have your questions answered. Find out what it means to follow him. If you are a Christian here this morning, then rejoice in the king that God has provided. He is humble in heart.
1: He is faithful. He is sinless. He's compassionate. He came to rescue us and he brought us peace. Let's
0: run to him and enjoy him. Let's pray and then we'll sing together. Heavenly father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the king that you provided that we wouldn't have chosen. We thank you that you know our need more than we do. And all of your wisdom. In all of your perfection, you you provided exactly what we needed. God, help us to put all of our hope and all of our trust in him. Give us eyes to see him
1: high and lifted up. We pray he would draw us to himself, even as we sing now. I pray in his name. Amen.